at the end of the service today. Typically on the Sundays we have communion. And by the way, for the, uh, for the next school year, we're going to try and average having communion once a month. Uh, this, in a sense, is the September communion because the next one will be, I think, the first Sunday in October and then November and then Christmas Eve and, and so forth. But when we have communion, for those that are visitors with us today, at the end of the service, uh, we take up an exit offering. There'll be ushers there if you'd like to give. And that's the only offering, that w that's the only fund in our church that, you, that is used to help members of our congregation that may have special uh, circumstantial financial needs. Uh, but today, the deacons wisely wanted to commit that offering to the flood relief over in, in uh, Louisiana. Uh, one of our former staff members is now a pastor in Zachary, Louisiana, and some of us have been in touch with him almost daily during this whole thing. Uh, their church is feeding, uh, supplying 200 meals a day to people in their gymnasium, mainly relief workers. Uh, our denomination has an agency that's disaster relief based uh, north of Atlanta, and uh, the fellow in charge of that quickly went over there and is assessing the whole situation, especially for members of uh, churches in our denomination, families in, uh, of churches in our denomination. The church in Zachary, I think uh, eight or nine families either lost their homes or their, their homes were terribly damaged. Uh, but I want you to know about the offering because this will not be the last you'll hear. We'll be, we'll be asking for more offerings for this work. They're going to be administered, though, through the local authorities there with our denomination. Like, the, now, We're not just going to send it to a church. We've got the Disaster Relief Agency, and then later uh, we will be working closely with them so that our offering is, is funneled in the, in the best place and with the best use possible. Okay? So that, I'm not going to I won't say any more at the end of the service except to remind you that there will be ushers uh, at the door to receive the offering. Uh, today I'm going to be uh, preaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's page 952 in these uh, Bibles in the pews. And I want to tell you this. In several weeks from now, I, I said at the first service is September, but it's in October, we have a weekend that's, that's a theological institute. We call it EQUIP. And Dr. Michael Kruger is our guest speaker this year for that Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday morning. Dr. Kruger is... Uh, one of the best minds and writers today about the the New Testament documents because you don't have to read far today or listen to skeptics and a lot of the attack is that the New Testament is not reliable that the authorship is not reliable and and uh, how it was compiled well that's his area of expertise he's the president of Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte and he'll be here to speak and on that Sunday morning this is his passage but I, since I'm preaching through 1 Corinthians, and since I'm sure he will come at it from a very different angle than I plan to, I said, well, I'm just going to go ahead. And I'm going 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. So that's uh, where we will be this morning as you turn there. Uh, just a brief word of review, Car and then I'll pray um, after we read. Um, Corinth, remember the Apostle Paul, about 52 A.D., had gone there. He had planted the church. He had led the synagogue leader named Crispus and his family to Christ. He stayed there 18 months. Uh, many people had become believers, and the church had been established. Then Paul went to the city of Ephesus, where he stayed three years. This letter was written from Ephesus. 
and he's writing back to this church in Corinth uh, because he had heard reports that there was division among them. There was a party spirit centered around personalities. Some were saying, I, I'm a follower of Paul. Others were saying, well, my hero is Apollos, who was a great preacher, defender of the faith. Others were saying, mine is Peter, Cephas. Others were saying, well, we're of Christ. So if you were here two weeks ago, we looked at the passage where Paul addresses that disunity and, and talks about the need for unity in the church. Uh, Corinth was a, a great city. It was a very wealthy city because it was on the isthmus in the country of Greece. All the business travel going from north to south or south to north or on the oceans from east to west and west to east had to go right through Corinth. And so a lot of these people had, had become wealthy. There was power there and uh, so forth. So with that in mind, follow along with me, if you will, as I begin at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, we pray again with the psalmist as we do weekly that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to begin by giving you a very brief survey this morning. Don't answer out loud or raise your hand, but just think about it. Choose which words you would rather be used to describe you. Um, wise and foolish or powerful or weak? Would you rather be wise or foolish? Would you rather be powerful or weak? Don't answer, that might present more problems than we've got time to deal with today. Nobody wants to be made a fool of. Uh, I read once by someone who had studies the human mind that most of us tend to remember those things that are painful and those things that are embarrassing. If, if we were to have the time or the desire to say, hey, tell us your most embarrassing moment from your life, we would be astounded at the stories we've heard. We would also be astounded at how clearly our memory is of such, though it may have happened many, many, many years ago. In fact, I remember it. No, I'm not going to. If you, uh, but So wisdom or foolishness, power or weakness. Now, I bring those to you because the Apostle Paul in these verses and in the early part of chapter 2 is going to use those words pitted against each other over 20 times. Wisdom and folly or foolishness and power and weakness. And sometimes it can get confusing when it sounds like he's condemning power but then he praises power. He's condemning wisdom and then he's praising wisdom. Here's what he means before we look at the verses. The wisdom he's going to condemn is human wisdom that leaves God out. It's basically the, the assumption that I can philosophically understand the world 
strictly by my own reasoning with no external God or anyone to explain it. It's totally rationalistic, and he refers to that wisdom as folly. But the world looks at the wisdom of the cross of Jesus Christ, of the idea of a Savior who is sent, born of a virgin, grew up poor, carpenter, then a three-year ministry with 12 fellows that they basically looked at as losers, and then to die the most reprehensible kind of death, the death on a cross that you would not even speak of, uh, in a refined setting, and then a so-called resurrection that they said was a rumor, they view that as foolishness. But Paul says that is the wisdom of God. The Corinthians were saying that power was what we think of today. Money, influence, network of who you know, political power, authority over other people. And he says that is weakness. But the real power is the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's how he describes those words, as you'll see as we go through this. Uh, and he's touching a nerve. But he's dealing with a problem there because what had happened in this church in Corinth is they had begun to take the message about Christ and tried to make it acceptable to the world around them. Sound familiar? It goes on all the time. Let's just change some of it. Let's do away with some of the parts that may sound uh, uh, backwoodsy and anti-intellectual. Uh, you, you know, heaven, hell, God becoming a man, uh, resurrection from the dead, bodily resurrection. And let's, let's kind of make those more acceptable and uh, a little more intellectual sounding. And that's what Paul's dealing with. He's saying when you do that, you're, doing, you're not getting power, you're losing power. And the power is found in the gospel. What I want to do just briefly, and this is preparation as we come to the Lord's table, is look at how Paul points out a variety of responses toward the message of the cross. And the first response is what I'll call an intellectual response. And that we read in verse 20. When he, when he gives these rhetorical questions, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? So the wise man, the way he uses it here, was referring, referring to the Gentile, the, the non-Jewish person who was uh, not a follower of God, not a believer in God, but was what they would call an intellectual of the day. That's what he means by the wise man. The, scribe, the scribes were the Jewish intellectuals. They were the copiers. They copied by hand what we call the Old Testament, the, the law, the law of Moses. And they knew that law like the back of their hands. And they, they knew the letter of the law, but they did not know the heart of the law. And who, do, who does he mean by the debater of this age? This was the Greek intellectual philosopher, many of whom lived on the plateau of Athens, the Corinthians' country, the Athen in, in Greece. They were the most brilliant people in Greece. And we find Paul uh, debating with them in Acts chapter 17. And they could debate with you about anything, supposedly. And they claim to be able to look out at the universe and to make sense out of life and death and the universe, and God had no part of it. Now, today, that we would call this a, just a strict intellectual, a strict intellectualism of our day. And in our culture, my experience has been, is that you are, if you are truly an intellectual, you're always seeking. You're always asking questions. You are 
you are always in process in your journey, your quest for truth. And that's acceptable until you arrive at a conclusion. And then if you say, uh, I've reached the end of my journey, and this is what the truth is, then that is seen as anti-intellectual and usually not tolerated very well by the group that you were formerly in. And so Paul writes about them. And in verse 21, he tells about, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, he's using those words differently, in God's wisdom, in God's choice, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know him through seeking him only by worldly wisdom. The world did not know him through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So the world through its form of wisdom, which is my mind, we can rationalistically just figure out everything. Without any acknowledgement of God, without any revelation from God, we can figure out and discern and understand life and death and all that happens. Well, that rarely happens. You think about astronomers. Many are brilliant. They chart the object, the the orbits and shapes of the planets. And, And yet, though many are professing believers, it's rare that a telescope leads a person to God. Uh, scientists who peer through microscopes and study a whole world of organisms that are invisible to our, our naked eye, and they record the details of this invisible world to human eyes, and they analyze and scrutinize and theorize, but this rarely leads a person to God. Uh, though I'm dating myself, and some of you will remember, back in the 1960s when the early days of manned space travel Uh, I remember when the Russian cosmonauts said that they had traveled around the earth in space and had not found God. They had not seen God. And I remember the words of the old Baptist preacher W.A. Criswell who said, you know, if, if only that cosmonaut had taken off his suit, stepped outside the ship, he would have found God. (laughs) But we can have all these intellectual pursuits and, and obviously, and I hope, We are not anti-intellectual. We love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Uh, But how can I know him? Can I uh, just figure it out on my own? Can Can I do that with no revealing from God toward us? And maybe the question we ask isn't, can I know God? It may be in the form of, my life has no purpose. How can I find meaning and purpose in life? And Paul answers, and I already read it, but the latter part of verse 21 Uh, when when he says that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Okay, that's the first, the intellectual, strict intellectual response to the gospel. The second is what I'll call a demanding response. A demanding response to the gospel. This person demands a sign. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. When Jesus was ministering on the earth, uh, about four different times, the Jewish leaders re- ask him repeatedly to perform a sign from heaven in order that, as a result, they would believe. If you'll only show us something spectacular, supernatural, then we will believe. In Matthew chapter 12, we have one example of this. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What were they looking for? They were looking for a Messiah who would come like a mighty conqueror, defeat their Roman enemies, their oppressors, set up his kingdom, return the glory to Israel. They certainly did not understand the Messiah had to suffer and die before he could enter into his glory. And so these Jews that were seeking for a sign were offended at the weakness of the cross. How can you dare suggest that the Messiah, the Redeemer who has been promised all through the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, could be born of a young Jewish teenage girl stuck in a stable in Bethlehem, then taken to Egypt, and then raised in the backwoodsy place of Nazareth, poor, with a father who's a carpenter who taught him the trade, and then have these men follow him, these 12 men, and then be crucified. And not once did he make any plan to overthrow Rome in their eyes. And he didn't come on a white stallion or a shiny spear in his hand. And would you want that kind of person? Would you want that? What does a Jew want that he's referring to here? A sign. I want to see something. Some of you. I've been a pastor long enough that I've talked to a number of people that they really are looking for a sign, and they think if they see that sign, they'll believe. Uh, I think the scripture tells us we have enough testimony, and a sign wouldn't help. If only God will answer this prayer, if only God will provide this job, if only God will heal my wife or my husband or my child. Think how much glory it would bring to him. If only, if only God would do this, then I would believe. Um, the man who discipled me, my, my spiritual mentor is John Musselman. John lives in Atlanta. I talked to him for an hour on the phone this past week. But uh, John was one of the first fellows I knew that was older than I was who talked to people regularly on a one-to-one -one basis about his faith. And John, from an early age, was just a, uh, a very devoted reader and thinker and very philosophical. And I remember we were in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, uh, at, a, at a, a Christian conference for high school students between Christmas and New Year's. And so if you've not been to Gatlinburg, it's one of the most authentic, real Swiss towns. You've been to Gatlinburg, right? Okay, it's a tourist trap of all tourist traps. And there's nothing authentic or original there except the, the land. Everything else is not. But there were thousands of people there between Christmas and New Year's. And after our meetings at night, there were probably a couple of hundred of us at this conference, we would walk around and go see some of the things downtown. It's got this long main road and all these attractions. And we got in a conversation with these two guys that were sitting on a porch of a, uh, a little chalet right there off the main road. Really, John did the talking. I was just listening. And for about an hour, I listened to John deal with some of the most formidable objections to the Christian faith that I had heard at that time, from the validity of Jesus even existing to the validity of the Bible to how we know God exists. And John patiently and lovingly dealt with this guy who was very caustic and antagonistic. But he calmed down as time went on, and there was another fellow with him that didn't say a word. He just sat there the whole time. And as we came to the end, 
John had gone through the whole gospel and he said, would you like to believe in, to receive Christ as your Savior? And I remember this guy, and he, and he said it like this. He took his hand and he said, I will not believe in Jesus until he comes and stands right in front of me. That was his sign. He was the man. Until he comes and stands right in front of me. And John just quietly and patiently said, that will happen, but by then it will be too late. And he turned to the other guy and he said, what about you? And the fellow said, I want to receive Christ. This guy, he wanted to have his, put his faith in Christ right there in Gatlinburg. Don't harden your heart by demanding a sign. Uh, God has given sufficient testimony. It's not overwhelming. We don't look at the Bible as being overwhelming, that you can prove beyond a shadow of a doubt there's a God. But it gives sufficient testimony. It gives sufficient reason. Okay, third response. I mentioned intellectuals. I mentioned those who were demanding. And then the third ones, he, I call them the scoffers in the latter part of verse 22 and 23. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the Jews demanded the signs, and the Greeks viewed this message of the cross about Jesus as just being foolish. Uh, from their human point of view, I mean, the very notion of a suffering God, of a criminal Messiah, and a way to God through him, that was ludicrous. Ludicrous. And Paul was not suggesting that these Gentile intellectuals knew nothing. Uh, he knew too well that the Greek thinkers had made some achievements that he compliments them for when he debates them. But their wisdom, as your human wisdom cannot, as my human wisdom cannot, enable us to find God and experience salvation. It doesn't get to the heart, to the root of the problem. Charles Swindoll, uh, years ago, told about sharing the bridge illustration with a very brilliant physician. If you know what I'm talking about, that's just a simple presentation of the gospel with this bridge you draw out and you can explain how we can know God through Jesus Christ. So he had had lunch with this physician. They're talking and he draws this thing out on a napkin and he explains it to him. And then he said to the man, what do you think? What do you think about this? And he said the man just stared at it, this brilliant physician, and finally said, in a million years... I could never believe something so illogical. That's the response of a man who cannot make it fit in his frame of thinking. I know what it's like to be laughed at by a college student. I mean, laughed where, they, where she looked at me and said, Do you realize what you're saying? Do you realize how ridiculous this sounds? The whole notion of the cross and Christ being the Son of God. I, and she said, it sounds like science fiction. My only response was, you're right. Who would think something like this up? That makes me think it's true. Because who would dream it? If you were to say, write a short story, who would come up with this one? But Paul says in verse 23, rather than going with the, the signs for the Jews, the intellectual response, responding to the scoffers, he just simply says, we preach Christ crucified. And they view it as foolish, not the preaching. Paul, what Paul's saying is the message of the preaching. What's foolish is the message that is preached about Christ. Paul is saying we don't have anything to change. 
We don't have to make it acceptable in the sight of the world. We don't have to hide parts of the truth so that it sounds more sophisticated. It's all about the atonement of Jesus dying in the place of sinners. We were not sick. We were dead. And we needed to be raised to newness of life. And that's what it's still about. And what the Corinthians were doing, they were trying to clothe the gospel in the rags of human intellect. Once again, we're not anti-intellectual. And there's definitely a place for apologetics, and I have a great heart for that, and defending the faith and, and helping a person that's got really intellectual questions about this. But at the end of the day, we're not going to get there by playing down parts of the gospel. Uh, and that's what Paul is saying. Um, in the fourth response, in verses 24 and 25, some believe, and they experience the power and wisdom of of God. So the gospel is not simply good advice. It's not just an announcement about God and about God's power. It is God's power to those who believe. Many of us here have, have been transformed. Oh, we're still sinners. And if you were to get to know me or anybody else here that's been transformed by the gospel, you may not be too impressed. But if you could have seen us before, <laughs> uh, you would be impressed. I want to tell you about one of those, and it's a man who, among many of us here in the congregation, this, this theologian has probably influenced us more through his writings than anyone else, and that's R.C. Sproul. Now, you may have never even heard of, his, heard of him, so let me tell you about him. Uh, R. C., I don't even know what R.C. stands for. <laughs> Do you know? Ellie? I don't know. I don't even know what those initials stand for. Uh, R.C. Sproul was born in 1939, so that makes him in his latter 70s, right? And he's the founder and chairman of Ligonier Ministries. Uh, it was named after the valley in Pennsylvania, Ligonier Valley. Uh, and he's authored more than 60 books, uh, countless articles. Uh, he co-pastors St. Andrew's Chapel in Sanford, Florida. We were there last summer, one Sunday. And uh, his testimony is written out in the beginning of his book, Reasons to Believe. But I'm going to give you the, uh, the short version here. Being born in 1939, R.C. Sproul was a wartime child. And he said the earliest questions that plagued him was, the earliest question was, why could Roosevelt and Hitler not sit down at a table and resolve their differences? Why does there have to be all this fighting? And for him, it was personal because the war meant the absence of his father. From age two until age six, he said his father was nothing more than a picture in the house of a man in his uniform. And his father was the one who wrote letters to the family. And his father was the one that his mother talked about and would type out letters to mail to him at night. And R.C. said that for some strange reason... None of his childhood friends' fathers were away at war, only his. At least in his mind, it seemed that way. And he kept wondering, why does everyone else have a dad at home and I don't? The day that, that his father came home from war, he gives great description to in his testimony as one of the, the happiest days of his life. He was just ecstatic. Now, although R.C. Sproul has spent most of his adult life 
in an academic vocation of teaching and writing. He said he never liked school as a child. And he wondered why you had to go to school five days a week and that only left two days the weekend to play sports, which was his passion. He fell in love with sports, football, basketball, baseball. By his own description, he was consumed with sports. He read every book on sports in his school library and in his town library. And even today, he is a walking encyclopedia of sports trivia. No one here could beat him. <laughs> I can promise you. I've, I've heard him and another guy go at it before. And he said that practice for sports was never work. He loved every second of it because there was a purpose. There was a reason for the game, and that was victory. And his coaches became his idols, he said, because they always pointed him in the direction of victory. But then something happened that changed all of this. And it so radically affected him that even now, at this age, he says he's never fully gotten over it. And that is the fact that when he was 16 years old, his father came down with an incurable disease. And his mother came to him and, he, and said to him, there's nothing the doctors can do uh, you can still play some sports, but you will have to cut back and get a part-time job. Your dad is dying, and you have to be the man of the house. R.C. puts it this way. He said, my father did not die right away. He died one day at a time. Every night, he would fireman drag his father's emaciated body to the dinner table. And he said, internally, he just became a very bitter young man. And then when his father died, he became the paradigm, he said, of the angry young man. And he began to live a life of unrestrained degeneracy. In junior high, he graduated second in his class. But he said from high school, he was 157th by every crooked means of cheating available. He was so mad inside. He goes to college on a football scholarship during the first week of school, like this time of the year right now. The star football player came to his dorm room and he talked to him about Christ. We would put it, he shared the gospel with him. And R.C. Sproul was converted. And he writes, it was a spiritual experience of revolution. I always knew there was a God, but I hated him. In this first week, my anger and bitterness dissolved into repentance. And the result was forgiveness and life. Now, I wanted to use R. C. Sproul's story because he is a philosopher, theologian, apologist for the Christian faith, and yet what changed him were not philosophical arguments. He would later embark on that. It was the simple message of the cross of Jesus Christ. You want power? You want wisdom? The world dangles it before us as a carrot in the form of clothes or appearance or credit card limits or income. It offers wisdom, the savvy to do what you want to, when you want to do it. But the sad thing is the world can't deliver either one of them. It can't give you true wisdom and it can't give you true power. It's deception. The gospel appears weak and foolish, and at times even absurd. 
And yet that is where the power is. That is where the wisdom is. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we would never make up a story that involved a, a sinless man being put to death for sinful people. And, and we thank you for the transforming power of the gospel that you work in us. And as we come now to your table, that we were reminded, we see before us the very work of Christ and that we are to observe this until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen.